Welcome to A Transforming Word with Pastor Bill Buffington. This program is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Inglewood. Today on A Transforming Word. How do I know if something is an idol in my heart or an idol in my life? A couple things that you can just help you out. The things that you would knowingly sin against God to have anyway. Idols. If there are relationships that you know are out of bounds, but you want it anyway. Idols. If there are things that I want so bad that I don't care that it grieves God's heart, God, I don't care what you say about that. I want that. I want that more than you. That's an idol. There is always something or other standing in the way of our intimacy and ability to develop a connection with God. Today, Pastor Bill helps you in identifying the idols in your life. Anything that distracts you and keeps you back performs the role of an idol. It could be a bad habit that bothers God, or it could be an addiction from which you are unable to break free. However, by asking God for guidance in identifying the idols in your life and releasing you from them, you can break free from the grip of sin. Now, here's Pastor Bill in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 5, as he begins his message, Every Knee Shall Bow. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. I titled the chapter, Every Knee Shall Bow. We know that verse from Paul's writing, but it just was fitting that um, every knee, every, every knee, uh, even idols bow down. So let's look at chapter 5. It says, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. This is important, right? The Philistines took the ark from God's people and from God's turf, and they brought it home to their turf. And this was significant in their culture. This was symbolic. This was saying to them, we have conquered. We have beat Israel. And in just a moment, they're going to bring the ark into the temple of their God. And that would be symbolic of them saying, we have defeated their God, right? If you go into Staples Center, there's some banners on the wall, right? So if you go into Staples Center, um, who's home basketball wise? Who's whose house is Staples Center? Lakers house. That's right. Clippers fans beware. Right. And so and we prove it's our house. because We got banners on the wall that say it's our house. We've been winning games and championships all these different years, you know, and y'all don't have none. Ha <laughs> ha. You know, but it, it's how they know that this is our home. And now there would never be a Sacramento King banner up in the Staples Center or a, you know, Chicago Bulls. They would never do that. Right. There's only going to be the banners of the home team that's winning. So. When they brought this, the ark into the house of Dagon, which we're going to see in just a moment, it was them saying, we have conquered. Not We didn't just conquer Israel. Our gods conquered their gods. And I believe that's why God gets involved in this chapter, because it was God who allowed Israel to lose in battle because they were not right with him. But God's not going to have the Philistines misunderstanding, thinking that somehow their false God is more powerful than the true and the living God. So it says in verse two, when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. So a lot here, right? The Philistines took the ark, they brought it into their town. Then further, they took the ark of God. This thing represents the presence of almighty God. It was in the Holy of Holies in its rightful place. And now they brought it into the temple of Dagon and they sat it next to Dagon. They sat God's presence or the thing that represented God's presence next to their God, 
Dagon. So a few things on Philistine houses of worship. Philistines temples, they were, they would typically, they would have a statue of whatever God it was that they were worshiping. There were many gods that they worshiped, the Philistines worshiped, but they would have a prominently displayed statue of their God and it would be on a raised platform. And so they set the ark next to Dagon in this scenario. Dagon is one of the gods of the Assyrians. They believed that he was the father of Baal Hadu, another one of their gods. They, Dagon was the god or the father of Baal. So his temple was bigger than the temple of Baal in, in that territory. Dagon is often identified as the god of grain or of storm. If you looked at him, it was a half man, half fish. Um, some believe because of the influence, they were right. They were three miles from the Mediterranean Sea. It was essentially a merman, uh, which I don't know how tough a merman is going to be. But I mean, that's what it was. It was half. The bottom part of it was a fish and the top portion portion looked like a man. And that was the god Dag- Dagon that the Philistines worshipped. I mean, when you, you know, I guess from what I look, I look at mermaids as little girl, you know, creatures. And so it looks kind of weak to me now, but they thought it was pretty tough. They have a half fish, half man. They thought it was worthy of worship. And so, again, they kept the ark as a trophy of sorts. And the ark would have been placed in the temple to indicate that Yahweh, Israel's God, was defeated and was like a prisoner to Dagon. Because, again, when you would win in war, you would also you would capture your enemy and you would display them like this. Is, this is letting you know, I've captured them. I've defeated them. I've triumphed over them. And so them putting the ark next to their God in his temple, um, it was to show that he was inferior and they had demonstrated their superiority of their God over the God of Israel. Again, that's what they're setting up. That's what they have done. They're going to be sorry before the chapter is over. But I just want to be clear how they, they picked this fight with God. They took the ark. They should have left it alone. They'll be sorry later. And they brought it into this place. So verse three. It says in verse three, and when the people of Ashdod rose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And I just want to pause just a moment. Right. They come in early in the morning, uh, maybe for the morning worship, but they come to see, you know, what's going on. They go into their their temple of Dagon and their God, who's he's been fine for years. He's been standing strong. He's been on his pedestal. There has been no problem with Dagon. But the first day they put that ark in there and they come in the next day and Dagon has fallen down his face to the earth before the God of Israel. When Now, someone falling down with their face to the earth. What kind of posture is that? Humility and worship. It is. I wrote down. It's a posture of humble worship. So while they were bringing the ark in to say, we beat you, they walk in and find their broken God, their their God fallen down in a position of physical position of worship before the ark. I I wonder if it set in. I wonder if they saw that and said, "Ooh, let's fix that. Maybe, you know, maybe they thought this is just just happenstance, coincident. You know, this thing, it just it just happened to fall down into that position and that posture this couldn't be right and so i love this the end of verse three it says so they took dagon and set it in its place let me just say this if you can pick your god up you should not be worshiping your god if you can build him pick him up 
if he can fall down and you have to, if you have to gird your God up, that God is not worthy of your worship. Amen. We have a God that can gird us up. Amen. When we fall down, we have a God that can pick us up, that can give us strength, that can come to our aid. What kind of a God is it that you have to you have to build it first or buy it and then keep it and clean it and fix it if you if you drop it? You know, they had to pick up their God and put him back on his little pedestal. And so Psalm 135, I'm going to read verses 15 through 18 to you guys. Psalm 135. 15 through 18, it says the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. That is such a fitting word for any kind of idol worship in the world. God said, look, imagine that they worship this God. He's never heard a prayer. He's never extended a helping hand. He's never, you know, he's never fed them, clothed them, give them why he's never done any of that. They may be giving him credit for it, but he hasn't done a thing. He just fell down. And, and I thought, what's that commercial? It's, it used to be the old lady commercial. They, I fall and I can't get up. That's their God is literally falling down. He, he need a life alert button to push so somebody can help him out. He couldn't even push that. Right. He's falling and he can't get up and they got to come and bring him up for them. Everything that the psalmist says here, man, they have they're made of silver and gold or whatever men make them out of. But they they're the works of men's hands. Now. In our time, in our culture today, we don't necessarily worship idols like this. But that sort of worship still does happen. If you go into many of your um, certain culture stores today, there'll be Buddha at the front. Have you guys seen that they put food out? So imagine that you put, they put fresh food out for the little boo. He can't even eat it. They got to go pick it up afterward and throw it out after he don't eat it. But Imagine putting, I put food out for my dogs and they eat it. I mean, you putting food out for your God and he can't even consume it. It's just there. But that sort of worship happens today. It might not look like that for us. So let me give us a few ways that idolatry happens that may be more relatable in the context in which we live. For these people, the idol represented something for which they would worship, something for which they would sacrifice, something for which, something that they revered. And so there was worship given over to these idols. They were treated as God to them. There could be things, people, relationships, titles, or other false gods. There could be, there could be a, a myriad of things that hold that kind of place in our hearts. How do I know if something is an idol in my heart or an idol in my life? A um, couple of things that you could just help you out. The things that you would knowingly sin against God to have anyway, idols. If there are relationships that you know are out of bounds, but you want it anyway, idol. If there are things that I want so bad that I don't care that it grieves God's heart, God, I don't care what you say about that. I want that. I want that more than you. That's an idol. Anything that finds its place on the throne of my heart above the Lord is an idol. You guys follow me there? So it might not be a wooden thing, a golden thing, a silver thing. It could be a person. It could be a hobby. It could be a thing. It could be an idea. It could be a position. Is anything that would elevate itself in our hearts and our lives above the Lord 
We want to remove those things. We want to kick them to the curb. We want to put them in their place. We don't want to worship anything that's not God when we have access to the true and living God. Amen. Having said that, because I believe many of us here are worshiping the true and living God. And you should know this. If you're worshiping the true and living God, we shouldn't be stumbled or hindered by the fact that we see people all around us worshiping that which is not God. Some believers are kind of bothered by that. Like, I just there's just so many different ways. I mean, how do we know you got the right God? If you understand that Jesus Christ is God, died on the cross for your sins, rose from the grave, and there's no way to heaven except through him, you got the right one. And the fact that there's a myriad of other gods, like, where did that come from? You got to know that Satan is behind it. Satan is the author of confusion. Amen. And, you know, one of his strategies, tactics, it seems, is that I'm going to present so many false gods just to muddy up the waters. And so we've got to be diligent to seek out uh, the true and the living God for ourselves. But like these people here, um, they are worshiping that which is not God. It's comical as we read it. You know, they got gods and they got to pick him up and he's falling down and they got to go rescue him. Uh, and it's going to get worse uh, for them even still. Um, but I don't want to laugh at them so loud that I mistake the fact that I got to check me too. God, is there idolatry in my heart? As I read this story, as I, as I read a chapter like this, is there any idols? Is there anything that's, that holds too great of a place? Is there anything I'm supposed to sit down and get rid of and let the Holy Spirit direct you in that? That's his job. I don't want to play Holy Spirit for you guys. Um, I need the Holy Spirit to be working on me just like y'all need him working in your life. So look at verse four now. It says, so after they had set him up, verse four, and when they arose the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold only. So this time when they go in, not only is he fallen down, he fell down and both of his palms are broken off down on the ground. He all broke his head, broke off. All that's left is the torso. So she got split from the man and merman part. You know, he got split in having all that's left there is the torso of this merman laying there on the floor, broken with his hands. The palms of his hands were broken. And I believe that there's a play on words that God does here because it says the palms of his hands are there. They're broken. They're down. And then the next verse is going to talk about how the hand of God was heavy on them. And so. His hands are broken off. Dagon's torso was left of it. Uh, that's all that was left. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So up to the time when this is being written, there were some superstitions and things that they believed. And so they wouldn't tread back in. Um, there are some things that they believed about you know, why this God had fallen down. It's like they missed that maybe this is the ark of God. Maybe God is doing something here. They just didn't go back. They, we're not going to cross back over that threshold, back in and out of this thing anymore. And, and so there was some fear for what had taken place, uh, but it was a superstitious sort of fear. And so again, it says um, that neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod. So in essence, the ark of the covenant messed that temple up. That house of worship for Ashdod is messed up because, look, the priests or the people, they're like, we're not crossing over that threshold. Something's going on there that we're not messing with. So 
in one sense, God got a win already. They don't even know it, but God just jacked up their false worship um, while they're there. So again, this time the God is broke. Their God is broken beyond repair. They can't just pick him back up. He's all broken into pieces and he's laying there before the ark. And again, this is what I believe God is doing. I believe God is making the point to the Philistines that a victory over Israel was not to be thought of as a victory over him. Their victory over Israel, while God was allowing that to chasten them, God is now letting the Philistines know, don't you get it into your hearts that you have a victory over the God of Israel. That's not what happened here. You had a victory over them, not me. And so I believe God is showing out in their temple through his ark. Their God is all broken up, falling into pieces, and he's not done yet. There's more to come, more that God is going to do. I was looking up in the manners and customs because I don't, you know, I don't know all about these idols, but I, I found this a section that talked about the, the importance of the hands and the head falling off. And it says this, the repeated fall of Dagon was a clear indication that Yahweh was not defeated, inferior, subordinate, or about to suffer humiliation. While the ark's presence in the temple of Dagon had been intended to humiliate, So them bringing God into there was intended to humiliate. The cutting off of the hands and head of Dagon indicated destruction. The head of a conquered foe was typically displayed as evidence of his death. And cutting off hands was a way of counting up casualties. So while they brought the ark in as a way to humiliate the God of Israel, God is like, I just killed your God. And I'm counting casualties. I'm counting hands. Um, all the things that they would do in their culture, this would have made this would have made perfect sense to them. God is saying, look, I've defeated, conquered and captured and I'm counting. I'm not done yet. I'm, I'm taking count. Those little hands count number one and the count's getting ready to go up. So this is what I get from this. Don't play with God. Right. Don't, I mean, now we're, we're believers here. Right. But but. Well, I just I just want the world don't play with my God. My, my God is not a joke to be played with. And so uh, there are people that take it lightly. There are people that take him light, but they shouldn't. God is love. God is gracious. God is patience. But God is no joke. God is to be revered and feared and reverenced as well. And he wasn't having this. And so he dealt with this. He set this straight, not because his people were right, but because his honor was on the line. and He wasn't having that. So. Now, look at verse six. It says, but so we got a We got a transitional word here. Right. We got a change. We've been focusing on the Philistines and their God and what's happening in their temple and how he's broken up. But it says, but now we transition to something else. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod while their God's hands are on the floor because he can't do nothing. God says, my hand, the hand of God, heavy. And I really believe that's God's plan. There's a play on words here. God, look, your God's hands cut off. The hand of God, heavy against the people of Ashdod, because the true and living God can actually do something. He can affect change in the earth realm. Again, I, I just as you read the story, you guys, we got to take lessons. So one lesson is this. The God of heaven and earth, he can affect change on the earth, in the earth realm. Right. He can affect change down here. So we should pray to him. So we should worship him. So we should seek him. So we should ask him um, because God is able to affect from heaven. He's able to do things that affect earth. God is causing what's happening here to happen. His hand now heavy upon the people of Ashdod and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, 
both Ashdod and its territory. Now, as you look this up, right, what are these tumors? There's a lot of different schools of thought on this. The most of your older commentaries and comment, you know, Bible scholars, the, the old school commentators and thought on this is that these were hemorrhoids. These guys have been stricken with hemorrhoids. Um, they got stuff going down in their private parts. They'll talk about that in just a moment. It's an embarrassing, painful, disgusting thing that they've been struck with here. Now, some of your newer guys are all saying, well, we think that this might better be said to have been the blue bonnet plague. Let me tell you where I stand with these things. I'm not one for explaining away, you know, what I see clearly. You know, I'm not looking for a natural reason when God says, I struck them with this. Ain't got to be no blue blonding plague. Ain't got, we technically, even though the guy, I, I studied this, right? The guys that are arguing that we have no evidence that the blue blonding plague existed this early in history or that there's ever any evidence of it. I think some guys just like this. They like the, They want to clean it up a bit. It's, it's a little gross and a little disgusting and a little like, I don't know. It's just, I don't want to say that. I'm not that pastor. So I, I, they got struck with hemorrhoids. They got tumors and they, and they, 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 and they hidden places and God is hitting them where it hurts. That's that I'm, I'm rolling with that interpretation. If you have a problem with it, it's okay. I, I, you know, we won't, it, it don't change heaven or hell for nobody, but that's what I'm reading. And we'll continue reading on here. So God hit them with some, his hand was heavy upon them. He hit them with these tumors. Uh, both Ashdod and his territory. So all around Ashdod, all the people are getting hit with this. It says in verse 7, and when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us, and Dagon our God. So hear this, they understand God is doing this to us. They're not confused. They're like, man, God is doing this to us. Anybody here ever been chastened by the Lord and you knew God was doing it to you? Anybody? I have had some times in my life where I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt, God's getting me and he's getting me for that. I knew, I knew what I had done when I had done it. And I'm like, God, I, all right, God got me uncle or, or father, you know. Um, you, you don't resist the chasing of the Lord. You don't get mad at the chasing of the Lord. You just repent. God, and here, here's the positive part of the chasing of the Lord. At least you know you're his because God only spanks his own kids. Amen. You know, so when he chases us, there's a sense that we know. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know what that is. I know exactly what I did. God, so I'm sorry. I repent. Forgive me. You got me. I, I, you're, not plumb, you're not to be played with. You're to be revered. You're to be feared. Here, these people that don't know the Lord and they're worshiping other gods, God's like, now you know, I'm not to be toyed with. They are, they know that their God has been humbled. They said, look, this, the God of Israel, this ark can't remain with us because the God of Israel is harsh towards us because we got these tumors going on. Everybody's having a hard time going potty. And we got these, you know, and towards our God, he broke our God, right? He, he ruined the temple of Dagon in this area of Ashdod. He ruined it. It ain't, it, ain't, it ain't popping no more. It's not the hot spot to go worship anymore. And so they say, we got to get him out of here. Now, I wish that wasn't the response, right? You, you wish they would look and say, man, we want, how do we get in favor with the God of Israel? How do we get right with the God of Israel? Instead, they do what a lot of people do. You know what I just want? Just get, just get God away from me. 
That's what people do, right? When there are people that when they they know they know God is real, and but they don't want to yield to Him. They don't want to submit to Him. They want to do their own thing, and so they just say, "Just get away from me." You've just heard a transforming word, brought to you by Pastor Bill Buffington. First Samuel is where we've been reading, and there's so much to take away from this book. Did you realize that many of the Psalms were written during the time that these events were happening? For much of this book, David was running from Saul. Wouldn't it be strange to be an arch enemy of your best friend's dad? Even though you didn't do anything deserving of death, you feel like a fugitive, and somehow you found yourself in this situation where you're running for your life. This was much of David's existence in the book of First Samuel. He was doing great things, but King Saul was jealous of him and felt threatened by him. So he wanted to remove David completely from the upcoming kingship of Israel. Do you feel like you're on the run, undeserving of the circumstances you're in, or are you on the other side, feeling jealous and insecure about another person, looking for their downfall? In either case, these two men needed God's help. One chose to rely on God, and the other turned away. Which direction will you choose? If you like the message you just heard, we're so glad. You'll find more solid teachings like this one from Pastor Bill Buffington at CalvaryInglewood.org. Will you prayerfully consider spreading the good news with us? If this interests you, you can find the Give tab on our website. Don't forget, that's CalvaryInglewood.org. This ministry is an outpouring of Calvary Chapel Inglewood. Thanks for listening today to A Transforming Word.